Well, good morning. It is, uh, it's a privilege to be here, and uh, I will let you know that when, um, when Pastor Elvin reached out to me a number of weeks ago about the opportunity to be here with you all, I jumped at the chance, and that was largely due to the fact that, that City Light has a reputation, and it's good. You're known for loving the neighborhoods that God has placed you in well. You're known for the way in which you are committed to disciple-making. And so when Pastor Elvin said, hey, can you come and would you preach? I was like, I'm all over it. Because I love being with God's people. There's something encouraging about being together on this thing called the mission of God for the redemption of all things. Amen? So, and, El, and then over the last, few, uh, the last few weeks, last couple of months, actually, I've gotten to know Pastor, uh, Pastors Elvin and Jameson a little bit more, and they were like, oh, we're so excited for you to come, we're so excited for you to be here, it's going to be great. They all left. <laughs> right? Even this morning as I pulled in, Pastor Tyler was uh, pulling out, he's like, I got to go. I'm like, oh my gosh. So yeah, you know, here's the deal, when the cat's away, the mice will play. So we're gonna have uh, we're gonna have a good time this morning, and and my family and friend of the family are here to uh, with us, and for everyone who is joining us online, uh, so grateful that we get to spend these na- uh, this next hour together listening to my sermon. <laughs> Substitute teacher, right? Can do what he wants. No. If you have your Bible with you or a Bible on your app, I do want you to go to Luke chapter 15. We are gonna spend most of our time there this morning looking at one of Jesus's famous blocks of teaching. Now, we have been going through this binge series. Is it okay if I use the pronoun we? Right? Because we're in this together. Amen? We're a part of the kingdom. And I just want to thank you for worship this morning. Your call to worship, this idea that we all have a seat at the table with our name on it, goes to what we're going to be talking about a little bit this morning. So I want you to know that no matter where your faith finds you on this day, Whether everything is as it should be, or you are in need of some divine intervention, or you are wondering if there is a place at the table, respond in faith to this good word that you heard this morning that you are welcome. The kingdom of heaven is like a party. It's a celebration. It is an acknowledgement that God loves this world so much that he refuses to let sin, pain, and suffering have the last word. The God that we serve, the God that you and I have, uh, have encountered, longs for us to know him. Longs for us to flourish. And is committed to his plan to remake a new heavens and new earth, which all things are being made new. And this is the story that you and I are invited into. So we have been doing this series called Binge, which is the different sort of genres uh, that we find in Scripture. 
And each genre actually helps us understand the story of God in different ways. And you have gone through the wisdom literature. You have gone through the apocalyptic literature uh, that Pastor Tyler talked about. And then Willie's sermon on uh, prophecy. All of these things for us are ways to understand how God is telling us the same story about himself, about who we are, but most importantly, how all of this points and leads us to Jesus. The story of scripture is about a who. And when we discover who Jesus is, and when we discover how he has loved us, then we can discover more of a sense of who we are and how we are all invited to participate in this kingdom. So the genre that I get today is is known as the gospels. The gospel is a genre. Now this is interesting because how many of you have grown up in church? Right, so how many of you have heard the term like Christianese? You know, Christians kind of have their own little language. And we say things, and sometimes words can become so familiar that they're unfamiliar. Right, so when we say like, oh man, that's gospel. That's the gospel truth right there. What that usually means is shorthand for, I agree with that, what that person is saying. Now, it might be true. And it might be tied to the gospel, but the gospel as a genre of scripture is much broader than that. And if you were to ask most Christians who've grown up in the church or even someone outside the community of faith who are seeking and looking to see uh, what this is about, you say, what is the gospel? They might say something like this. The gospel is the what? Good news. Yes. But what's that good news? Right? That'd be like someone saying, hey, what's milk? And they go, it's leche. Yeah, it is, but we want something a little bit more than that. And as a a, a kind of genre in terms of how we understand the gospel writers, this is going to be important for us. So I want to just only spend a couple of minutes giving you a quick kind of technical description of gospel as a genre, as it relates to the story that we find in scripture. And then we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at Luke chapter 15. Does that sound okay for everybody? All right, so this idea then of the gospel, if we were to, again, it's been reduced to the idea, like the gospel is the good news that Jesus died for our sins so that we can go to heaven when we die. How many of you have heard something like that before? Right, or it's the, the four spiritual laws or the ABCs, admit, believe, confess. And all of these things are true at some level, but these are only parts of the bigger picture of what the gospel is. Now, how many of you have notification, push notifications on your phone for different apps that you sign up for that says when there's breaking news or there is something important for you, you want to get notified? Does anyone have something like that? Right? So for me, it's all sports. Okay? So if you see me check my phone during the service or you hear it buzz, it's because something dramatic in the sports world happened. But we get these notifications, right? They're like breaking news. And that term gospel in the Greco-Roman world, the world that Jesus came to live and occupy, was known as a news flash. It was a public service announcement. And generally speaking, gospels were used by the Roman Empire as a way to announce the accomplishments, the military conquests, the the weddings, or the, the arrival of children from the Caesars right, from the empire. It was a way of reminding everyone who was subject to the king how great their king was. And it was used in such a way to remind everybody 
Not only where they stood in the pecking order, but who Caesar really was. That was one element. And so when the Gospels, which, were, which are the biographies of Jesus, the narrative of his life, when the four evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, pen their narratives of Jesus' Gospels, there is something beautifully subversive about the message. In other words, it's this. Caesar isn't king. Jesus is. And this is how Jesus becomes king. And this is how the community of Jesus' followers now are meant to live into this story to announce to the rest of the world that Caesar isn't king, Jesus is king. Do we still live in a world where we need to be reminded that Jesus is king? The church needs this reminder more than everyone else. I'm just like, since I'm, you know what? I may not ever come back, so I can say this. <laughs> Too many times, the evangelical church in America treats their president like the king. But we are called to understand this good news, that it does not matter who is in office. Our calling is to honor King Jesus, to pray for our leaders, to speak prophetically, lovingly, truthfully, but with this profound hope that our king is not persuaded or discouraged by whatever cultural event we find ourselves in at any given moment. If anything, we can see it as the opening up of the Holy Spirit saying, here is where God's good world needs healing. Here's where it needs reconciliation. Here's where it needs the church committed to this idea that Jesus is king needs to do its best work. Thank you. So this is going to be awkward, but my belt just broke. So I don't know how this is going to look online, but give me just a minute. So I'm going to start looking like Matt Foley from Saturday Night Live, the motivational speaker who keeps pulling up his pants. Living in a van down by the river. <laughs> so if I walk a little less, it's only so that my, my britches stay up. I actually thought this was going to happen today. True story. So the Gospels, the Gospels are really this. They are a public announcement that God's kingdom has arrived and that it has been made available to all, including sinners, who would respond in faith. And this gospel announcement of the arrival of the kingdom is vindicated by the birth, the life, the ministry, the healing, the exorcisms, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. That the kingdom has been inaugurated and that the good news of the message of this gospel is that we faithfully live in light of this reality, anticipating a day when King Jesus is going to return and set all things right once and for all. But in the meantime, we as his people are meant to live in such a way that we anticipate his arrival. This is what it means to have faith on the earth when the Son of Man returns.
that we live in light of this promise that Jesus is making all things new. So in Luke 15, Jesus tells this dramatic story. So let me read it to you very quickly. And this, I think, is the first slide that we have. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they did what? They grumbled, they complained, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now this is important for us when we think about this. Jesus then turns around and tells them this story. And I want for us to realize and imagine that we're there. Here is Jesus at a table with all the wrong people. Are there any country music fans in Benson? I didn't, I didn't, a couple, okay. So this illustration is a lot more well-received where I'm from or where I serve. But how many of you know like Garth Brooks' songs, I've Got Friends, where? So you all listen to country music. Don't act like you don't, right? This is what Jesus is doing. He's eating and mealing with all the wrong people. And in Jesus' day, in the ancient world, to actually sit down with someone and to share a table with them was to extend, the, like I would say, the right hand of fellowship, extending hospitality. It was a way of Jesus affirming the inherent dignity and worth and value of everyone around the table. These were all the wrong kinds of people. The Pharisees and scribes, who we know from 2,000 years of church history, are the bad guys in this. But who the Pharisees and scribes were this? They were people who knew that they were living in a world that was not exactly as it should be and who were doing their best to try to live faithfully to God's word. Does that sound familiar? We're a lot more like them than we think. Now that's a generalization and it goes much deeper than that, but, but I want us to have a little empathy for the fact that what, these, what the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling and complaining about was to say, look, if the kingdom belongs to anyone, it's not going to be belonging to the people who Jesus is hanging out with. Don't we kind of make those judgments in our day today still? Like if I say, hey, I want you to just do this thought experiment for me. Think of a group of people who you don't think are going to be invited to the kingdom. Okay, on the count of three, I want you to tell me who you thought of. No, don't. <laughs> I'm kidding. We all have that in us. But they're grumbling and complaining. And this word that Luke uses, grumbling and complaining, he uses on purpose. Can you think of an Old Testament story in which the people of God grumbled and complained? Remember the story of the Exodus? When, Jesus, or when God had freed his people from slavery and was taking them to the promised land? And what did they do the entire time? They grumbled, they complained, so much better in Egypt. We had food to spare. It was comfortable. And this is intentional. What Luke is trying to communicate to all of us is that a greater exodus was here. That Jesus was going to liberate all of creation. The entire cosmos. That through Jesus, heaven and earth were now going to be reunited at last. And that this great exodus for not just the people of God, but for the entire creation was now upon them. And as people who were waiting for that, they should have what? They should have celebrated. They should have been glad. 
For those of us who've grown up in church, how many of you know that when God starts doing stuff, the people who sometimes complain the most are those who've been in-house the longest? So we find ourselves in this story, and at the end of this story, then, Jesus goes through a story of a lost sheep, a lost coin, and what we'll spend the last bit of our time together looking at the story, the most famous one, the prodigal son, I would, incur, I would like us to rethink of it as actually the fact that Jesus had two, or Jesus telling the story, the father had two lost sons. And as Jesus tells this story, I want us to think about as we binge the gospels together, that we consider this idea, that as Jesus tells these three stories, that each one of these stories would have sort of hit each of the people there to say, I think he's talking about me here. Has anyone ever done that? You've told the story or someone has told the story and you're like, I, I, I think they're trying to somehow uh, be nice. Like Nebraska nice, that's the thing. Kinda. But, it, but what I want us to think about is this. Who's there at this dinner party? Who's there at the celebration? It's Jesus. It's the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, and it's the Pharisees and scribes, and it's, of course, Jesus' disciples. And all of, these, all, of, all of these people would have had a vested interest in the story that Jesus is going to tell. And while we don't have enough time to go into too much depth into all of it, what I want to suggest to us is to think about this. When Jesus tells these three stories, in each of the stories, he identifies as the shepherd, he identifies as the woman, and he identifies as the father. Because in each and every situation, the shepherd, the the woman, and the father are all what? They are seeking to find that which was, and what does Jesus seek to do? Find that which was And in each and every case, when Jesus finds the thing which was, he brings it to the community and throws a? So listen, whether you realize it or not, this blog party that you're going to throw in a couple of weeks is a manifestation of the kingdom of God on the earth. That you are for the places you live. And then this is how Jesus comes to us in just a minute. Okay, so I got to pull these up. It's terrible. 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 I'm going to go shopping for a new belt after church. (laughs) So this last story he tells about, there was a man who had two sons. The younger son goes to the father and says, give me my share of the property. And so Jesus tells the story this. So, um, So he divided the property between them. So here's what I want you to understand. Both received their share of the property. Both sons are, at this point, fractured with the, in their relationship with the father. I want to also for us to consider that the older brother in this story are the, are the Pharisees and scribes. The younger brother are going to be the sinners at the table. Both of them have a view of the father that is distorted. And sometimes their distorted view of the father deals squarely with the relationship that they have with each other. How many people do we know are no longer a part of the church because they had an encounter with an older brother type? You see, in this story, so when he asks for, when he asks for his share of the property, let's look at it this way. When do we normally, for those of us, when, when do we normally assume we would get any kind of inheritance from our parents? When they are, when they've passed. 
So when the younger son asks his father for the share of his property, in some ways, what he is saying is this, Father, I think my life is better off without you. I want all the benefits that you have to give me, but my life, I don't want you in it. Now, for some of us who look at it and go, well, if my son or my daughter did that, my answer to them would be, but look at the father in this story. Do you know of all the Old Testament passages, the one that is the most repeated in the Old Testament is that the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. And we see that played out in this story. The father divides the property between both of them. So the older son gets his share of the property just like the younger son did. And by the way, this share of the property wouldn't have been just a couple of clicks or a couple of wire transfers. The older son would have gotten two-thirds of the property. The younger son would have gotten one-third of the property, the assets. And so he liquidates all of this and he leaves. And all of this is in the full view of the community. And Jesus, as he continues to tell the story, things go from bad to worse for the younger son. He goes out into a foreign country. He actually squanders all of his wealth. The place where he lives, hard times come upon him, so much so that he sells himself to the owner, to a landowner of a foreign country and gets a job caring for pigs. Now, Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, telling that story to a community who already feels oppressed by Rome and has strict purity laws are saying, well, this younger son is just getting what he deserved. Don't we do that still as Christians? Don't we operate more like we still believe in the law of karma more than grace? But it says here that the, that the, young brother comes, the younger son comes to his senses. He thinks to himself, oh my gosh, my father's servants, they have more than enough food to spare. I'm going to make a deal. How many of you have ever tried to make a deal with God? God, if you just, then I will. Did that work out for any of us? I still do that. I still do that. I still tell God, well, hey, if I'm good here, will you do this? And if I can go 70% of the way, can you do the other 30%? Or if I get my act together here, can you kind of come alongside and help me out? And this younger son actually thinks to himself, all right, I'm just going to make a deal. I'm going to go to my father and I'm going to tell them, uh, I, I've sinned against heaven and earth, uh, and, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son Treat me as one of your hired hands. And he begins the long journey home. Now, one of the things that Kenneth Bailey, who served as a missionary in the Middle East for a number of years, brings to our attention with this text is to say that there was, there was most likely going to be a kind of ceremony awaiting the younger brother when he arrived back into the village. Remember, his leaving, his leaving his family um, taking a third of their land, their possessions with him, he would have been the talk of the watering hole. He brought his family's name into disrepute. People assumed that, they're like, that he just he wasn't a part of the family any longer. 
Kenneth Bailey talks about the fact that what would have most likely accompanied his return into the city gates, into the village, was a ceremony called the Kazaza. Everyone say Kazaza. Anyone heard of it? It's, it just means cutting off. And what would normally happen is as this, what would have been most likely the cultural case as the younger son walks into the village and as the young, as, as the teenagers in the village were out and about and they saw the younger son, they would all recognize him. And they would go into their homes and say, so-and-so's younger son is returning. And everyone in the family, because of their religious indignation, do you know what I'm talking about? People who sometimes feel that, there's, that their perceived sense of spirituality entitles them to judge other people. I've done it. I've had it done to me. They would grab something like a bowl or something that would be breakable and they would come out and they would meet. They would meet the person. And so if it were me who were walking through the village and I was coming with this idea of like, I'm going to make a deal with my dad with my father, to be, hired as a, to, be, to be hired as one of his servants. They would have shattered the bowls at my feet, saying something like, Mario was cut off from the community. Mario is no longer welcome here. Mario has uh, damaged his father's good name. Mario is no longer a part of us. And this would have been the kind of things that they would have heard coming in. And how many of us in our culture hear those things one way or another when they consider whether or not God is someone who they can trust. But here's the good news. This doesn't fly with Jesus. He tells us that the father, when he sees him, a long way off, a long way off, is filled with what? Compassion. And he runs to him. 2,000 years of being distanced from the story, I think we lose what Jesus is saying here. But he, put it this way, in that culture, wealthy, middle-aged men did not run. Not because they physically couldn't. <laughs> because it was seen as beneath them. The father would have most likely been wearing what? Long robes? And in order for him to run, he would have had to have pulled up his robe. And in pulling up his robe, he would have exposed his skin, which was seen as shameful. So let's paint the picture. The younger son is coming home. He is met not with celebration, but with shame. But the father, and who's the father in the story? Jesus runs to him, shames himself so that the younger son can be reconciled. And as he lifts and as he embraces his son, that community that was all around them would have transferred their shame from the younger son to the father. What is he doing? Why would he do that? Doesn't he know his son? If I was his dad, that's how I would have never done it like that. But is there anything in our story where the king of the universe shames himself so that you and I can be brought home? 
You see how this story is playing out? The younger son's plan is undone. He can't even get the words out other than just to accept the embrace of his father and just say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father says, what are you talking about? Quick, bring me new robes. Bring me a new ring. Give me some sandals. There's a place at the table with this, my son's name on it. Kill the fattened calf. We're going to have a what? Let's try that again. We're going to have a what? And by the way, guess who's invited? All of you. Including all of you who broke glass on the way in to shame my son. The story gets better. So now imagine we're at this party. Do you know who has been extremely silent up until this point in the story? The older brother. He comes home. How many of you hate missing out? I do. It's why I used to not go to bed before one o'clock, because I'm going to miss something if I go to bed before one. It's a true story, I know. Um, Jesus continues to tell the story in this way. The older brother comes home. And he hears a party going on and he calls one of the, one of the servants over. It's like, what's going on? Dude, your younger brother, he's home. He's home. So your dad, he killed the fattened calf and we're all having this party. Now remember, who got his share of the inheritance at the end of the story? The older brother. Everything was actually his. So in this story, in this party, and as the oldest son, he was the representative of the family. So let's put it this way. In the party, there would have been a, a, a table where there were seats of honor. The father would have been here, and this right, the seat to his right would have been unoccupied when the party started because it was reserved from who? The oldest son. This is where he was supposed to sit. And then the younger son, now being returned to the to the family is at the table of honor. You want to talk about awkward? Could you imagine being the younger son? Sometimes grace is a bit overwhelming, isn't it? Sometimes the goodness of God, we're almost like, it's too much. But we've got to learn to abide and to allow that lavish, exorbitant, like reckless love to wash over us. But he's empty. He's no one's there. And, and, and he refuses to go in. Word gets back to the father. Now, what did he do when he saw the son? The younger son, what did he do to him? He got up and ran. Now, again, social convention would have been this. How many of you have raised children? How many of you uh, have had your children be disobedient in public? And have said to them, I will take care of it when we get? Okay, good. Not just me. My kids have never experienced that, by the way. Um... What would have happened, what would have happened, or what should have happened would be this. The father, the, young, the oldest son not showing up would have been a sign of disrespect. It would have been a sign to say that the older brother does not approve of what's going on. Normal convention would be this. The father would just simply say, I will deal with my older son after the party is done. But the dad gets up and he leaves the party. 
which was beneath him, which would have brought him shame, which would have brought the criticism of the community. And he goes out and it says to entreat, to plead, to beg his older son. Go back and read their, read their back and forth. The older son basically said this, I can't believe this. My whole life I have worked for you, I have slaved for you, and you have given me nothing, not even a young goat to celebrate with me and my friends. And in that moment we get the picture that even the older brother who lived in the house, who experienced the presence of his father daily, still did not see his father as someone who loved him, but simply a taskmaster to be obeyed. And the father says, what are you talking about? This would be to the, ta- to the Pharisees and scribes. I have always been what? With you. If you wanted something, all you needed to do was ask. But we had to celebrate because your brother's home. He was dead. He's alive. He was lost. And he's found. And the parable ends. We don't know what happens. It's a cliffhanger. What would the older brother do? So many times this story has been retold this way. Jesus loves the younger brother, but Jesus, he doesn't like religious people. But can I tell you, Jesus loved everyone. It's not that Jesus didn't love or didn't like religious people. What Jesus did not love was a religion that made people less than people. If you read the book of Acts, chapter 15, there's a conversation about what the church is supposed to do with these new non-Jewish converts. And there's a line in there that says this. And some of the Pharisees who believed in Jesus after the resurrection, which lets us know this, some of the older brothers went to the party. They joined. And guess what happened to them when they joined? Jesus threw them a what? A party. The kingdom is a party. Let's go to these last few slides here together as we talk about binging the Gospels. So it reminds us of the story of how God stepped into human history through the person of Jesus to redeem and reconcile heaven and earth back to himself. He is the head of the body, the church, the beginning and the firstborn among the dead so that everything he might be preeminent. Let's go to the next one. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of the cross. So when we binge the Gospels, it gives us confidence about who Jesus is. This is what Luke would say, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us. Just as those who were from the beginning, eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty about the things that you have been taught. Family, you can be certain of what has been taught to you about who Jesus is. That Jesus' 
mission is to reconcile all things in heaven and earth back to himself. Let's go over the last two uh, slides. Binging the Gospels reminds us of our identity and mission in Jesus. We're a part of a new creation. We're a part of one new people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Look around. Look at just how different and how beautifully diverse this community is. Do you know that this is one of the signposts of God's new world breaking in? Because we live in a world that is so fractured, that is so divided, that is so suspicious, that when they see people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every age group meeting together, celebrating, having, having a party, they look at it and go, what is different about them? And am I invited? And our answer is yes. This is a part of our identity and mission. Lastly, it reminds us that we are beloved and we are friends. Luke 15 is one of those. You can live in that chapter for a year and not exhaust all the riches. I want to end with this. Most of us, when we read that last parable, we think, I'm more like the younger son. How many younger sons do we have in here? That's our story. I was far off, and then I came to my senses, and Jesus came and found me. Some of us go, man, I'm kind of like the older brother. But do you know what really what I believe the Holy Spirit is wanting to encourage us with? We all have a little bit of the younger brother and older brother in us. But what the Holy Spirit wants to do in us is to make us like the Father. He wants us to make us like the shepherd. He wants to make us like the woman in Luke 15, who will always be committed to seeking and searching and pursuing those who were lost. That we would take joy in the ministry of reconciliation and that when the lost are found, and the dead come to life, we respond in the most appropriate way possible. We throw a party. This morning, my invitation to all of you is this. The God of the universe desires to throw a party over you. He delights over you and rejoices over you with his singing. The God who sees us, even when we feel unseen, knows the deepest and darkest places where we even sometimes dare not go and there he shines his light so that what even was dark to us will become light to him. He calls us into the family of his kingdom, breathes his life into us and invites us to join him on this mission of reunifying heaven and earth. And this morning, you are invited. You are invited to join this party. Whether it's the first time or whether you're recommitting to following Jesus. There's a seat at the table with only your name on it that no one else can replace. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you that it is in your nature to search, to seek, 
to reconcile, to heal, to forgive, to transform. Lord, I pray for those here this morning, Lord, for whom a celebration is awaiting for, that you would remind them that you see them, you know them, that you love them, and that you are calling them to a newness of life. Jesus, may the reality of who you are be revealed. May they have an apocalypse of your loving character so that their lives are forever changed. Lord, for those of us who have been a part of your family for a long time and we forget, we forget that you have called us to be a people of celebration, a people to go and to search and to look and to to be in community with one another. Would you rekindle and restore within us through your Holy Spirit a fire of love for you and for our neighbors? And may we be reminded that all you have is ours. We only need ask. So pour out your Holy Spirit to us in greater measure that we may see the world as you see it, that we may love the world as you love it, and that we may see heaven and earth come together in the most beautiful and in the most needed places. Father, I just want to pray a prayer of blessing over City Light Benson. Holy Spirit, would you do what you have called this community to do in and through them? As they continue to pursue you and to seek the welfare of their neighborhood, may this place be a light, a place of rest, of hope, and of reconciliation. Jesus, may you continue to extend the work of your hands through this beautiful community whom you have called to yourself. We pray all these things in Christ's name. And as people said, amen. Come on, let's give it up for Pastor Mario. Wow. None of the pastors are here today, so speaking on behalf of the, the elders and the leadership, you're welcome back anytime, Pastor Mario. Anytime. That was a great, great word. We're gonna we're gonna transition into a time of communion right now. And in the back, when you walked in, you uh, had the opportunity to grab one of these little communion packets. If you did not and would like to join with us, please raise your hand. And Don, I see a bunch up here up front. Jared, thank you so much for helping out as well. Just keep your hands raised until somebody gets to you and they can hand that to you. Uh, For those of you that are watching online, I want to encourage you, go get something. Get a couple things. Get something that you can drink. Grab some bread or a cracker or something so that you can join with us in communion. I wanted to read to you real quick from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, he said this in verse 23. He said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, 
in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That proclamation of the Lord's death isn't just one where we say, Jesus died. But it's a proclamation to say why Jesus died. So if, if we were to take a, a, where Pastor Mario ended in, in Luke 15, and we were going a little bit further, to Luke 24. Now we've seen Jesus has died, he's resurrected, and it's the next day. And there's two gentlemen, they're walking, he's, they're, they're part of the way, it says. And they're walking to, to this community called Emmaus, which was seven miles away from Jerusalem. And they were walking and they were, they were sad and, and, and it said that Jesus came up on them but they could not tell that it was him. And he said, what are you talking about? They said, what do you mean, what are we talking about? We're talking about Jesus. He died. And so what they were doing at the time is they were remembering his death. They weren't remembering what his death provided for them. And so every time that we come together in this place and we have an opportunity to take communion together, we need to remember why his body was broken so that ours could be healed. We need to remember why his blood was shed so that we also could have eternal life, so we could have our sin removed. And so this morning, as we partake together, I want you to think about not just that Jesus died, but why he died for you. So I'm gonna pray, and then at, at the, the time as you pray over yourself, maybe over your family, and you're ready to, to take communion, you go ahead and do that. Father, we just are so grateful for what this, this time of communion of breaking bread together, what it means. We remember, not like, a, like a, a picture from a vacation, but we put ourselves in that place of remembrance of why Jesus' body was broken, why he shed his blood for us on the cross. And we're so grateful for what you've done for us. We're so grateful for all that you've provided for us. And we remember every time we do this, those great things that you've done for us. May we go out and share that with others. In Jesus' name, amen.